Welcome to the podcast for Christ Community Church in Oak Ridge, Tennessee. My name is Lee Younger. I'm one of the pastors here, and this is a message I gave on Sunday morning, February 18th, 2024, from the Gospel of Luke in chapter 9. Uh, 20 times in the four Gospels, Jesus said two words. These two words were an invitation. They were a challenge. They could be a pivot point in somebody's life, depending on how they responded. The words were, follow me. When Jesus said, follow me to somebody, he was saying, I am asking you to turn over your life to me. I'm asking you, like, whatever direction you are going in, that now you're going in the direction I'm going. Whatever, however you saw the issues of the world, whatever your opinions were over you know, the world and the things, all, all that stuff, I want you to bring that behind the way I see things and the way I would teach you to see them. Follow me was a, it was a demanding couple of words. And we've been looking at some instances where there were people who said yes to this and their lives were completely changed. There were people who said no, at least initially, And then there were some people to whom Jesus said, follow me. We don't actually know how they responded. We don't actually know what happened. It's kind of a cliffhanger. And that's where we are in Luke chapter 9. Before we start reading here, I have a little question I want you to think about for a second. Which is, how did you come to believe in Jesus? Do you, like, do you think about your own story in that way? Have you thought about it a lot? Have you told it to people before? How did you come to believe in Jesus? Maybe for some of you, and if this is you, you can, you can respond. You can let some people know that you're out there. Is there anybody that knows, like, this is the, ex- I know the exact moment that I believed in Jesus. I remember the day. Okay, that's awesome. We have at least one. Like, I remember the day. I remember what, what happened. I, some of you might even remember what you were eating or what you were wearing. I know when I came to believe in Jesus. Okay, anybody have that situation where it's like, I have no idea when it was. It was a process. I've prayed the prayer like 7,500 times. Anybody like that? Okay. I guess at some point it kicked in. Um, So I'm not really sure. All of that is great. Anybody, um, does anybody have the feeling of like, you know, I grew up around the stories of Jesus. I grew up in church and in Sunday school and my parents loved the Lord. And I honestly don't remember not loving the Lord or not believing in him. Anybody like that? Yeah, there's... All kinds of different stories of how people came to believe in the Lord. And, um, and, you know, if if we were to ask 80 people, we might have 80 different stories. If we were to ask everybody in here, we would have however many of you there are, different stories. Anybody, um, your story was somebody came into your life and they told you the story of Jesus and it just clicked for you when they told it to you and you started to believe in him. Anybody like that? That's cool. Okay. Last one, this is going to take some courage. Did anybody, you came to know Jesus because you basically hit rock bottom. Like, you, life, like my, my life became a total train wreck, and I just, he, he, he was the last place to turn. Anybody have that situation? Yes. Yeah, see, okay, right. I was like, uh-oh, this is going to be quiet. Thank you. <laughs> Courageous friends, I'm so proud of you. Thank you. I think there's so many different ways that people have come to know Come to know the Lord, come to believe in Jesus. And I think what happens is, when you come to believe in Jesus, yes, Todd? How about Vicky and Becky Jenkins? 
Yeah, you can thank them. Yes, let's thank Dickie and Becky Jenkins for... Hey, listen. Look, we... Those, those, of us who, those of us who walk with Todd and know him now, we're like, it's a beautiful thing what the Lord has done in his life. Those of you who knew him before, maybe you think that's even more impressive. So that's really great. That's beautiful. I was telling somebody this week that um, there, was a, uh, there was a lady that was going to Triple C for a while who, when I was growing up, was, uh, was my neighbor. Like she, Our backyards met together. And um, so she watched me grow up as a teenager. And I preached one morning, and I walked out there to get some water, and she was standing out there, and she said, you know, Lee, I really didn't see that coming. (laughs) Not even, not even a little, nobody in the neighborhood saw that coming. There's a, uh, you know, I think what happens is you, you come to believe in Jesus, and then over time you start to make him a part of your life, right? Like maybe you start to... Um, you know, you start to go to a church or you start to go to a Bible study. You start to read scripture on your own or maybe you get some believing friends. You get some community around you of, of believers and all of a sudden Jesus becomes more and more a part of your life, right? This is kind of, you believe in him and then he starts to become more a part of your life. And I think that's what happened for three people in particular that we're going to look at in Luke chapter 9. Now, before we look at what happens with them, I want to give you a little context of what's going on in Luke chapter 9. We don't want to just parachute down in there and like, where are we? Okay? This is what's going on in Luke chapter 9. Now, the Gospel of Luke has 24 chapters, but when you get to Luke chapter 9, the story is almost over, which you're like, what do you mean? That's not even halfway. It's like one-third of the way through the entire Gospel. I know, but this thing happens with all the Gospels, which is we get all these stories and all these moments throughout the ministry of Jesus, and when they get close to the end of the story, especially the last week before Jesus went to the cross, everything slows way down and we get a lot more detail. So when you get to Luke chapter 9, there are only about six months left of Jesus' ministry and his time on earth. In Luke chapter 9, Jesus has now told his disciples why he came into the world. Yes, he's been doing a lot of teaching. Yes, he's been doing a lot of healing, a lot of miraculous and wonderful and amazing things. And he's been known for those things, and people are really, really excited about it. But he finally told them the reason he came into the world, which, which is, I mean, the healing and the miracles and the teaching, all of that stuff was amazing. And it flowed out of his compassion for a broken world. But the reason he came into the world was to die for this broken world. That's why he came. God put on flesh. Almighty God became a human being in the form of Jesus primarily to lay his life down to pay our unpayable debt for sin. Amen? That is, whoo, that's, that's our message. And he finally told those guys that about six months out from the cross. And he, sa- he said, we're going to Jerusalem and I will be betrayed. I will be arrested. I will be uh, put on trial. I will be mocked. I will be beaten, tortured, and executed. And they are like, what? They can't even fathom this. And then he told them, he said, and three days later, I'm going to rise from the dead. I don't even think they heard that. Uh, A little while later, a few days later, Jesus took three of those guys up onto the uh, little bit more than 9,000 foot peak of Mount Hermon. This is up in Lebanon. And people that live there tell us that Mount, like it's high enough that it's pretty much got snow on top of Mount Hermon year round. 
And it definitely would as six months before the Passover. So this is kind of like October, November. They go up onto the top of Mount Hermon. And it's a long day hike. And it's at the end of the day, they're, they're beat. It's, they're, they're there in the snow with Jesus. Maybe they put a little food together or something. And then in the middle of the night, something amazing happened. The Gospels say that Jesus was metamorphosed in front of them. He changed form. Like he started to glow from the inside out. They said his face was brighter than the sun. And you can imagine it just bouncing off all that snow on all the trees, just like icicles and everything else, and Jesus just lighting up the night. They said, one gospel writer said he looked like lightning standing still. Unbelievable. And they're just like, what is this? And all of a sudden, Moses and Elijah showed up. And I don't know how the disciples knew that. I don't know if they had name tags or what. But like all of a sudden, Moses and Elijah are there. And it says that they were talking about his exodus, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. So Jesus said, I'm, he told his disciples, I'm going to Jerusalem and I'm going to be killed. And they're like, no, no, that'll never happen to you. He goes up on Mount Hermon and Moses and Elijah are going, you have to do this. We are in heaven on borrowed time. We're right there on credit. You got to pay the balance. Otherwise, we get kicked out. And they like cheered him on. And maybe he just needed some encouragement because his best friends did not encourage him in this. And from that moment on, something incredible happens. Luke chapter 9 verse 51 says, Then when it came time for Jesus to return to heaven, he resolutely set his face for Jerusalem. He resolutely set his face. From that moment on, everything would change. That phrase, he resolutely set his face for Jerusalem, is almost exactly like this really cool place in Isaiah chapter 50 where the prophet is talking about the Messiah and kind of talking in the voice through like, you know, kind of talking in the voice of the Messiah like before he ever came, a prophecy where he says, you know, I, I have let plowmen plow my back. I've let all this stuff happen to me. He says, but because the sovereign Lord helps me, Therefore have I set my face like a flint. It's almost exactly like the phrase that Luke used. Set his face like a flint. From the moment that Jesus got that encouragement from Moses and Elijah on the mountain of transfiguration, everything changed. He set his face like a flint for Jerusalem. A, a flint is a kind of rock that, that people used to make arrowheads out of. And when I read that, the thing that I think about is like Jesus like an arrow in God's quiver. And he sent him to earth for a specific purpose. And he did a lot of amazing and miraculous and beautiful things. But that whole time, from the moment like Jesus is born in Bethlehem, he grows up and then he goes and gets baptized by John, in the, John the Baptist in the Jordan River and he starts his ministry. And in my mind, from that moment on, God has knocked his arrow and he has the, the string pulled back. And all that tension through the feeding of the 5,000, through the washing of the feet, through raising people from the dead, through all of those things, all the, the Sermon on the Mount and all the things that he did, walk, you know, like all the things that you know Jesus for, that whole time I'm just picturing the Lord is like holding the tension on this bow. He goes up to the mountain of transfiguration, Moses and Elijah occur, encourage him, and when he comes down, he resolutely sets his face like a flint for Jerusalem, and God, boom, lets the arrow go. Now it's going to Jerusalem at breakneck speed. Nothing is going to get in his way. Nothing's going to slow him down. Nothing is going to deter or distract him. He's going to hit his target. That's where we are in Luke chapter 9. Shall we go there? Let's go. Okay. 
As they were walking, as they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He said to another man, Follow me. But he replied, Lord, first let me go bury my father. Jesus said to him, Let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, No one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. That's the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Whoa! Like, yikes! This is not the Sunday school Jesus I grew up on. Anybody else? This is not felt bored Jesus. This is intense. This is, this is a high bar. This, this is a demanding set of conversations. It's unbelievable. Like, what, what in the world is going on here? Now, a couple of little things to kind of understand where some of this is coming from culturally. One, I mean, I think the, easy, like the most natural way for me to read that first little scene is this guy's like, Jesus, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus is like, will you? Well, so just so you know, it's not going to be five-star hotels. There's not going to be champagne at dinner and continental breakfast in the morning. I don't know what five-star hotels are like. But, like, um, it's, I've never been to one of those. Like, it's not going to be like that, okay? Um, and, and so I don't think you're really, I don't know that Jesus was saying it that way. It's easy to look at this guy and say, like, oh, he's so impulsive. He doesn't even know what it is to follow Jesus. What if the situation was, this guy was super impulsive, and he's like, Jesus, I'll do, I'll go anywhere and follow you. And Jesus is like, I love that, love that spirit. Just so you know, here's what it's going to be like. Like, when a fox is pursued or hunted, it can run away and go to its little den, its little hole in the ground. If a bird is being preyed on or hunted, it can fly away and go to its nest. Just so you know, if you want to follow me, that's awesome. I'm not hiding at all. I'm not going to um, fly away to any safe place. I'm going straight into the heart of darkness and danger and sin and death, and I'm not pausing. I'm not getting out of the way of it. I'm going straight there, like an arrow shot out of a bow. You still want to go? That's what it's going to be. Second guy says, well, first let me go bury my father. And that, Jesus is like, let the dead bury their own dead. And you're like, whoa, like, <laughs> Chill. Like, his dad just died. Well, first of all, his dad didn't just die. We know that because uh, Jewish custom, if his dad had just died, he would not have left the house. They, would, they have a, uh, a thing called sitting shiva, where you would stay seven days in the house. He would not be out here. This was actually a phrase that people would use even if their parents were still alive, but they had sole responsibility of the care of their parents. Then they would say, well, as long as this goes on, then let me, um, let me take care of my responsibilities. My dad's not even dead yet, but that was the phrase, is first let me bury my father. After this is all done, then I'll take care of you know, following you. Who knows how long the old man was going to hang on? Like Nobody knows what this situation is. But Jesus, but to me, like, even if I explain that to you, like, that doesn't really soften Jesus' words here, does it? These are harsh words. He's like, it's like there are people who are awake to the kingdom of God and what's happening. And there are, people, there are people who are awake and alive to it. And there are people who are asleep and dead to it. You let them carry on with that stuff. 
He's like, by the way, did you hear what I said about my own mom when she tried to get me to stop teaching? I was like, who were my mother and brothers? And she was like, oh, wow. <laughs> like, Jesus has a different ethic here. I mean, this is a harsh statement, and I refuse to soften it for any of us. Not for me, and not for you. This thing about, uh, let me go say goodbye to my family. This, this was like a thing where they would um, like go spend time with everybody in the whole extent. This could take months. And Jesus is just like, you're not ready. You're not ready for this. Man, what is going on here? This is such an intense situation. Okay, now at this point in the morning, I have to do something that I have to be honest with you, I have been avoiding. Ever since we started in the new year talking about this follow me stuff, I have been avoiding this like the plague. I was hoping to not have to do this, but we have to do it, okay? We stack hands and do a, an awkward thing. We ready? Okay. This is a, this is a perennial problem in the community of believers in the Christian church and movement. This is, a, this is an evergreen controversy. The question is, can a person be a believer in Jesus without really following Jesus? Can a person be a believer and not really a follower? Can you believe in Jesus in a way that you're saved and your, your sins are forgiven and you're going to heaven and you're part of the family, but you don't really follow Jesus all that much in your life? Can you be a person like that? When I was growing up in church, you know, I was born in the, uh, in the, administrative, in the, the Carter administration. So I grew up in the, you know, born in the 70s, grew up in the 80s and middle school and high school in the 90s kind of early 90s, I remember this thing happening at church. And if some of you remember this, then, you know, you can pipe up too. But I remember there was this, there was this kind of little movement that started and it all revolved around this, this phrase that this preacher had come up with. And it was real catchy, real sticky. And, you know, preachers love sticky, catchy phrases because we want to say stuff and you remember it like all week. And it's like songwriters. I want to make it as catchy as possible. So this guy came up with this, this little uh, phrase, which was, if Jesus isn't Lord of all, then he's not Lord at all. Ooh, that's catchy. Well done, sir. Pat on the back. That's a very catchy phrase. The only problem is it's completely ridiculous. Um, did anybody hear the, if Jesus isn't Lord of all, he's not Lord at all? Y'all remember this one? Yeah, okay. Couple of problems, couple of big problems with this very catchy, very sticky phrase. Number one, First uh, John chapter 1 says that anybody who claims to be without sin does a few things. They deceive themselves, they call God a liar, the truth is not in them, and the word is not in them. Tough. That's tough. So, if everybody has sin, unless they deceive themselves, call God a liar, the word and the truth aren't in them. If everybody has some sin, then my question for the pastor with the catchy phrase is, what percentage of your life do you need to make Jesus Lord of before you're a part of this? Because if everybody has sin, then there has to be some percentage of my life that I haven't turned over to following Jesus, right? Does that make sense? So, okay. Is it like 94%, like a solid A? Um, is it like 89%, high B? 64%, like a, right above an F? Is that, what the, is that the grading scale? Except math people, y'all have the 10-point thing. And then uh, what about, I thought of this, okay. What if I turn over 51% of my life to the lordship of Jesus? I mean, at that point, when it comes to my life and lordship over it, Jesus is a majority stakeholder, right? So am I, am I saved yet? Am I in? Do you see how ridiculous this semantics game is? I'm being cheeky. It's ridiculous. But there's a second problem with this whole thing. 
It's a bigger problem. It's a deeper problem with that little catchy phrase, which is, if any one of us, you or me or anybody, has the ability to put every area of your life under the lordship of Jesus, you don't need a Lord Jesus. You don't need him. Because you have now figured out how to discipline yourself to become perfect. So can we cancel that thing? Okay, I think one of our problems on the other side of that deal is we didn't have a catchy phrase. So that's, that's, that's a PR problem. That's a marketing problem. Okay, so I've spent this whole week coming up with a catchy phrase for folks who think that you can be a believer in Jesus and not, maybe not necessarily be following him in every area of your life. Here it goes. Y'all tell me. We can workshop it, but y'all tell me what you think. Okay. If I don't need a savior for all, then apparently I don't need a savior at all. What do y'all think? Like that? Okay, good. I got a double thumbs up back there. If I don't need a savior for all, then apparently I don't need a savior at all. Y'all, uh, I don't know if there's anybody else in this room that feels this way. I need Jesus for every area of my life. I'm, I am constantly, I am constantly finding new areas and wrinkles and places where my attitude is terrible and my, the way I see the world is all messed up and jacked up. And if I don't see them, my family sees them and my friends see them. Ask Christy, ask Jack and Nora, like just ask these people that live with me. I'm always finding new places where I need a savior to swoop in and rescue me. Amen? Okay, so how do we square this thing? What is going on? Jesus is asking me to follow. It's this demanding level of turning my life over to him. I mean, but you have to be able to just believe in Jesus, even if you haven't given every area of your life to him. I mean, that's the message of the gospel. The message of the gospel is God became a human being in order to pay for the debt we could not pay, and he offers as a free gift to anyone who believes a complete forgiveness, a brand new heart. They get justified, declared as righteous as Jesus the instant that they believe in him. Amen? That's our message. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever, what? Believe. Believes in him will not die but have everlasting life. Think about that guy that came to believe in Jesus like hours before he died because he was nailed to a cross right beside Jesus. And in the waning moments of his life, he looks at Jesus and says, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. That guy couldn't do any of the things. Like Jesus wants us to house the homeless and feed the poor. He wants us to make our relationships right. He wants us to change things about our lives. And he's got all kinds of teaching about that. That guy couldn't house the homeless or feed the poor. He couldn't, he couldn't go around and make all of his old relationships right. He couldn't lift a finger to help build the kingdom of God because he was nailed to a cross. And yet he was just as saved as anybody else ever has been. Romans chapter 3 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely. It's a word that's translated other places in the New Testament without paying for it, for nothing. All are justified without paying for it. All are justified for nothing. Romans chapter 10 says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Period. Yes, you can be a believer in Jesus and you haven't brought every area of your life in, under his lordship yet. And yet he calls us to this. Here's what I think the ark is. You come to believe in Jesus and you start to make him a part of your life. 
like we talked about before. Maybe you start reading the scriptures, you get some believing friends, you start to learn about worship, all of those things. Maybe you start serving, you, start, you believe in Jesus, you start to make him a part of your life. But at a certain point, he's going to come to you because he wants to make you part of his life. And he's going to call you to a deeper call. And he's going to invite you into something more. And he's going to equip you for that. And he's going to encourage you into that. Because he's calling you in further into this thing. Now, my question is, like, like wh- why? Like, does Jesus need, like, a bunch of little house elves? Like an army of house elves to build the kingdom of God? And, of course, the answer is no. He doesn't need anything. Jesus is completely, completely self-sustained. In, like, God doesn't need us in any way. He doesn't need me to build the kingdom of God. Sorry, he doesn't need you at all. He could do it all by himself with a word, by the way, without hurting people the way that I have done in the process. He could do the whole thing by himself. But he calls us into this demanding, intense following him where he wants us to turn over every area of our lives to him. Why? You know, it struck me this week that the this question of, can you be a believer without, a follow, without being a follower? Of course you can. It's ridiculous. That's the wrong question. The question is not, can you be a believer in Jesus without being a follower? It's, why would you? Why would I be a believer in Jesus without being a follower of Jesus? You see, the thing is, is that it turns out that Jesus knows something. And y'all, this is the critical moment of the morning. So I'm going to invite you to lean in and pay special attention to this next bit right here, okay? And then in a couple minutes, I'm going to take my seat. Jesus knows that every excuse I've ever given him for not following him is something that kept me tied down to a so-called life where I told myself I was happy and I wasn't. Let's say that one more time. Every single excuse I've ever given Jesus for not following him in some area of my life is a place where I was keeping myself tied down to a so-called life where I told myself I was happy even though I wasn't. And Jesus knows something else too. And this one has been just complete. I mean, I've been completely blown away by this as I look back over my life. Jesus knows that every single thing that I've ever truly handed over to him and just let him have it, I either never missed it again or he smuggled it into his kingdom and made it a hundred times better and healthier and sweeter and more amazing. I think about relationships that Jesus asked me to walk away from and I didn't want to and then we struggled with it and I finally did and I look back on the way that I did relationships and I realize the reason he wanted me to turn it over to him it's not because he wants a bunch of little house elves doing his bidding it's because he loves me and because the way I did relationships was full of all kinds of jealousy and insecurity and lust and greed and just unkindness can anybody else testify to that and then you turn it over to him And he smuggles relationships into his kingdom for you that are full of generosity and kindness and sweetness and affection and goodness. It's unbelievable. The question is not, can you be a believer without being a follower? It's why in the world would you when he has all this real life available for you? I've been looking back over the the, just the harsh answers of Jesus. And I don't know this, y'all. This is speculation. Okay, so I don't know this to be exactly true, but it's my, it's my, it's, it's what I think. Let me say that. 
I think that the reason that Jesus answered these people so harshly is he's tired of excuses. I don't want the details. I don't want you to give me a reason for not following me that you think is going to talk me into like, oh, yeah, you're right. I should never have asked you to follow me. You're right. You have to do, you got to take care of this thing. I think he's tired of the excuses. I think if Jesus had said to this man, like the, the middle one, follow me. And if the guy said, I have an excuse on the tip of my tongue, but I'm not going to say it. I'm just going to look Jesus dead in the eye and I'm just going to say, you know what, Jesus, I, I believe in you and I even love you. I'm not ready to do that. I guarantee you, Jesus would have said, I know. I know you're not ready. I love you. Keep walking. One day that so-called life of yours is going to let you down enough that you'll be ready and I'll still be here. Uh, people give things up for the season of Lent as we, move towards, as we move towards Good Friday and Easter. What if we gave up excuses? Jesus already knows. What if he asks you to give something up or to change something or to turn something over to him? And even if you're not ready to do it yet, what if you just said to him, I'm not ready to let that go yet? And he was to say, I know, I love you. Let's keep walking until your so-called life lets you down enough to where you're ready. Um, most of you guys know this. I, I, I've had the opportunity to take, um, for pretty much every summer for the past 22 years, to take uh, high school guys to young life camps. And they get a chance to hear the message of the gospel in ways that they never have. Um, and ways that's specifically tailored to the way that they think and the way that they experience the world and sometimes even the way that they talk. And it's amazing to see kids respond to the gospel in that environment. And a few years back, um, I took a group of kids to, um, down to Sharptop Cove in, in Georgia. And we got to the end of the week, and I'm talking to all the guys one-on-one -on -one about where are you with this message, and how do you feel about Jesus? What, how, how are you understanding the message of the gospel and everything? I'm sitting with this one guy, and we're in some rocking chairs. And I was like, where are you with this message? And he said, you know what? I've never heard anything like it. It's unbelievable. He said, I, I think this, I think it's true, and I think I need this. And I was like, well, let's go. Like, what's holding you back, baby? And he was like, I got to be honest with you. And this guy had just graduated high school, and he was about to, in a couple months, he was about to go to college. He said, I got to be honest with you. Um, I want to do this, but I really want to go experience college, man. And I was like, do you mean what I think you mean? And he was like, yeah. I was like, so what you're saying is like, you want to jump into this Jesus thing, but there's a big part of you that wants to like go get hammered at college and just hook up with girls and things. Is that it? And he was like, yeah, man, you read my mail. That's it. That's exactly. I just want, I, I don't want to miss. You only go, you only have that part of your life like one time, man. I got, I got to go do this. I got to go experience this. And I was like, okay. Um, I was like, can I tell you two things? And he was like, yes. And I was like, um, one, as you go do this, I need you to know something. Jesus loves you and there ain't nothing you can do about it. You can't undo it. You can't outrun it. You're not going to change his mind about it. And the second one is just like it. I love you and there's nothing you can do about it. And I don't care what you do. I don't care what happens. That's the truth. So go do it. And when you get sick of it, will you promise me you'll call me? And he was like, yeah, whatever. 
So, like, this is an old man. What does he know about anything about life? Sure. So, um, anyway, a couple of months later, uh, he went to college. A couple of months after that, I got a, I got a text. And he said, um, hey, Lee, I'm coming in this weekend. Can we talk? Yep. Um, he said, I've never been this lonely or this empty in my entire life. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for this morning. And thank you for the fact that this intense, this unbelievably high call to follow you, to turn over every area of our life to you, that it's out of your mercy that you do it. It's because you love me that you're asking me to do this. You're not just saying don't. When I want to do something you don't want me to, you're saying don't hurt yourself. Would you give us the courage to follow? And in the places where we aren't ready yet, would you give us the courage to drop our excuses and just be honest with you about it? It's in your name we pray. Amen. Jesus is a mighty Savior. Helpless souls here have a friend He has borne their misbehavior And His mercy knows no end Oh ye helpless come And on His grace depend He to save your souls from ruin Shed His blood upon the tree Oh, ye needy hasten to Salvation's full and free Violent sinners shall His great salvation see Yes, the very worst of sinners Upon his grace rely Shall of endless bliss be winners And shall sing beyond the sky Songs of praises too once did die